All right, well, we are now getting into the book of Daniel, but we are not quite done with our background because chapter one is a lot of background. We have a little bit of background to get into even prior to opening up our text. And so if you'll remember from last week, Daniel has been documenting the beginning of the Babylonian captivity of Babylon coming in and uh, taking Israel captive. And we get an insider's view from Daniel's perspective because he was there amongst the captives. He was there uh, in, in, in Judah before, and then he was taken to Babylon. He was there for the entirety of the 70-year captivity. And so we're going to get a, a glimpse into that this morning. And I wanted to pull up our outline from last week just by way of review. We're going to be looking at chapter 1 today at this history of Daniel getting some background from Daniel. And you'll also remember, hopefully, that this book is divided up into three sections. Chapter 1 is written in a different language, even because it's written to, uh, to give us the background of Daniel, this Jew who is now in Babylon. Chapters 2 through 7 are focusing more on the Gentiles, and as such, they were written in a different language. It was written in Aramaic, which was the language that was used by Babylon and the, um, by the Chaldeans. And then chapters 8 through 12 kind of shift the focus back to Israel again and once again is written in the language of Hebrew. We also looked at last week the fact that Daniel is a, a real person. He's a historical figure. And a lot of people have brought that into question and wondered, okay, well, is, is Daniel even a real person? Is this book reliable? Is it trustworthy? It's so precise in its prophecy, and um, it's so accurate in its predictions that people have said, well, it had to have been written after the fact. Well, remember that Jesus himself affirmed Daniel. He called Daniel a prophet, and he said, has not Daniel the prophet written about this abomination of desolation? Um, and so if, if Jesus affirms Daniel, then certainly you and I should affirm Daniel. We shouldn't uh, bring him into question any more than our Lord brought him into question. Uh, we should remember that God is um, at the center of this book. We don't want to get too caught up in Daniel that we don't see God and what God is doing in the background, how he is moving amongst his people, how he is fulfilling his promises to his people, how he is... Um, working amongst the nations and orchestrating world events, even through uh, raising and um, sending out kings, that he is God both of the Jews and the Gentiles, and his sovereignty is absolutely on display throughout this entire book. His sovereignty and care are evident not just from a, a national perspective, but from a personal perspective too. God isn't only concerned with what the nations are doing. He's not only concerned with Nebuchadnezzar because he's some great king or with Darius or uh, Cyrus, but he is concerned even with the, the individuals. So we see that um, God is concerned on a national and a personal level, and he's not just a, a localized God. That was kind of a concept of this day that you had the, the God of the Babylonians, you had the God of the Assyrians, you had you know Israel's God or whatever. Remember in First uh, Samuel 5 um, when Israel was coming into Philistia and the Philistines were afraid because they brought the Ark of the Covenant with them. And they thought, oh, well, they have their God with them. We're in trouble kind of thing because that's the, the God of Israel. 
God isn't just the God of Israel. God is not a localized God. God is the God of all the nations. He's the God of the universe, King of kings and Lord of lords. And we'll see that throughout Daniel. All right, well, uh, again, last week we documented Israel's history kind of in a, a bullet point fashion, looking at the 120 years that Israel had as a, a joint nation where they were together, unified, all 12 tribes. And then they split, right? We had Rehoboam and Jeroboam. We had um, the split between Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And Israel was taken captive by who again? Do you remember? The Assyrians. Assyrians, good job. And Judah was taken captive by the Babylonians. And I remember that just because Israel is in the north, right? The north is on top. And they were taken captive first in 722 BC by the Assyrians, which starts with an A, right? And then the Babylonians, starts with a B, came into the south later on in three different stages. That's in 605, in 597, and the big one's in 586. And so that helps me to keep that in order. Uh, North is Israel first with an A. South is Judah Babylon with a B. Um, I thought I saw a hand. I didn't. All right. And so remember that all of Israel's kings were wicked and evil in the sight of God. I think there were 18 kings. Uh, Judah had kind of a mixed bag. They had eight righteous kings who did what was right in the sight of the Lord, and they had 11 evil kings. And so they're kind of back and forth, good and evil, good and evil. And because they had some good kings, God was more gracious and patient with them. Uh, but ultimately, again, they were taken captive by Babylon. That's what we're going to be focusing on in the book of Daniel, not the book of Psalms. And I want to start by looking at the five final kings of the southern kingdom of Judah. And so the first king that we want to look at, the fifth to the last king of Judah, this is all before Daniel, we're leading up to Daniel a little bit, was Josiah. King Josiah, he reigned for 31 years from 640 to 609 BC. And ultimately, he was killed by Pharaoh Necho in 609 BC. But I want us to turn together to 2 Kings chapter 22. And we'll read about this King Josiah. He's kind of a a big deal. So 2 Kings 22, and I'm going to go ahead and read verse 1. Now, Kilo, don't let this go to your head. But... Josiah was eight years old when he became king. He was different, right? You don't get to be king. And he reigned for 31 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Jedidiah, the daughter of Adaliah and of Bozkath. I don't think I need to read that last part. But he was eight years old when he became king, was king for 31 years. Jumping down to verse 2, it says that he did right in the sight of the Lord. And he walked in all the way of his father David nor did he turn aside to the right or to the left. So he was a a good king, right? And from here, the text goes on to tell us about a a priest who was looking in the temple, and he actually came across the book of the law. They had lost the book of the law, and he found it. And this discovery of their Old Testament text, right, of the Mosaic law, kind of changed the direction of Israel. Josiah took and and read this book or had this book read and incorporated its truths and put them into practice. Um, And we'll read down in verse 11 what he, he does with it. 
It says in verse 11 of 2 Kings 22, that when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. So he was repentant. He was changing his mind. Verse 16, uh, thus says the Lord, behold, I will... I bring evil on this place, on its inhabitants, even all the words of the book which the king of Judah has read. So God, now speaking, says, you guys are in trouble. And uh, you now are accountable. You've heard these words, and I'm going to hold you accountable. Verse 17, because they have forsaken me and have burned incense to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath burns against this place, and it shall not be quenched. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, that's Josiah, thus shall you say to him, Thus says the Lord God of Israel regarding the words which you have heard. Because your heart was tender, and you humbled yourself before the Lord, when you heard that I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and you have torn your clothes and wept before me, I truly have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you will be gathered to your grave in peace. And your eyes will not see all the evil which I will bring on this place. So they brought back word to the king. And so this was the message that was brought back to Josiah. You're okay, but Judah, my people, uh, they've turned against me, and... God is going to deliver them over to their enemies, that they're ultimately going to become captives of the Babylonians. And so this is uh, a prophetic word from the Lord. This is, has yet to be fulfilled, and he's going to hold out so that Josiah himself isn't taken captive. Well, we see uh, in 2 Kings chapter 23, in the next chapter, that Josiah comes in, he really cleans up Judah. He does away with all the idols. He removes all the statues of Baal and the Ashtaroth poles, uh, the temple of prostitutes, mediums, the spiritists. He gets rid of all of it. He comes in and cleans house. And we see um, after that, well, here let's look down in verse 25. It says about King Josiah that before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all of his heart and with all of his soul, and with all of his might, according to the law of Moses. Nor did any like him arise after him. However, the Lord did not turn from the fierceness of his great wrath, with which his anger burned against Judah, because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. You could read about that back in chapter 21. The Lord said, I will remove Judah also from my sight, as I have also removed Israel. And I have And I will cast off Jerusalem, this city which I have chosen, and the temple of which I said, my name shall be there. And so he's made this declaration, Judah's going to be gone, right? Even though Josiah was a good king. Let's keep reading. Uh, Now the rest of the acts of Josiah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? In his days... Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went up to the king of Assyria, to the river Euphrates. And King Josiah went to meet him. And when Pharaoh Necho saw him, he killed him at Megiddo. His servants drove his body in a chariot from Megiddo and brought him to Jerusalem and buried him outside of his tomb. Okay, so uh, that's how Josiah meets his end. That uh, this Pharaoh Necho, he's going up to the king of Assyria to meet up with the king of Assyria. Uh, Josiah is trying to intervene, see if he can 
calm tensions there a little bit. And Pharaoh Nico says, nope. And he offs King Josiah. So, uh, again, was Josiah a righteous king or an evil king? He was good. He was a good king, right? So we'll throw up a little thumbs up next to his name because he was a good king. All right. The fourth to last king in Judah was Jehoahaz. So let's look at Jehoahaz just in these next couple of verses. In verse 31 of chapter 23, it says that Jehoahaz... um, Let me see. Do I need to go back at all? Yeah, let's do the second half of 30. It says, Then the people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and anointed him and made him king in place of his father. Jehoahaz was 33 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. That's not long at all, right? And you'll see that on the slide. It's three months just during that period in 609 BC. And his mother's name was Hamutal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. He did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. Pharaoh Necho, same guy who offed his dad, imprisoned him at Riblah in the land of Hamath, that he might not reign in Jerusalem. And he imposed on the land a fine of 100 talents of silver and a talent of gold. And so this Necho character is coming in. He's collecting a tax from the, the Jewish people. Even though he has nothing to do with them, he's the king of Egypt, he's coming in and he is uh, imposing his might on the Israelites. And he killed their first king, he took their second king captive, and now he's imposing this tax. And it says there in, what was that, 32, that he did evil in the sight of the Lord. So we'll give Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, a thumbs down. He was an evil king. Moving on to the third king we're going to look at, Eliakim. And his name was changed to Jehoiakim. He reigned for uh, 10 or 11 years from 609 to 598. And he was actually appointed by Pharaoh Necho. So we'll read about him here in verse 34. I don't know. Well, actually, Jesus is how you can find strength and peace in this following. All right. Okay, so verse 34 says, Pharaoh Necho, same guy made Eliakim, the son of Josiah, king in the place of Josiah, his father. And so he uh, imprisoned Jehoahash and then put his brother into power in his place and changed his name to Jehoiakim. But he took Jehoahash, Jehoahaz away and brought him to Egypt, and he died there. So Jehoiakim gave the silver and gold to Pharaoh, but he... He taxed the land in order to give the money at the command of Pharaoh. He exacted the silver and the gold from the people of the land, each according to his valuation, to give it to Pharaoh Necho. And so uh, it's kind of confusing because we're dealing with the same guy. He has two different names, Eliakim, whose name was changed to Jehoiakim. He's willing to appease Pharaoh Necho to take the money from all the people, to send it back to Egypt. Uh, He is at his disposal. That is, Veronico's disposal. And if we look down in verse 37, we see this summary statement of him, that he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. And so, like Jehoahaz, Eliakim, or Jehoiakim, is also an evil, wicked king. He gets a thumbs down. All right. 
two more kings that we'll quickly cover, but notice that this Eliakim, the, the duration of his reign, when he is reigning, is when uh, this first group of people is sent off to Babylon or taken off to Babylon, right? That takes place in 605 BC, and it's during Eliakim's reign. And so these next two kings are going to be after the fact, but we'll look at them briefly. Uh, the fourth king we'll look at is Jehoiachin, Jehoiachin, and he reigned for three months in 597, and ultimately he was taken prisoner by, uh, by King Nebuchadnezzar into Babylon. We'll just read a couple of verses about him. In 24, 12 through 14, it says that Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, went out to the king of Babylon, that be Nebuchadnezzar, he and his mothers and his servants and his captains and his officials. So the king of Babylon took him captive in the eighth year of his reign. He carried out from there all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold which Solomon, king of Israel, had made in the temple of the Lord, just as the Lord had said. Then he led away into exile all Jerusalem and all the captains and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives, and within that's included Ezekiel, and all the craftsmen and the smiths. None remained except the poorest people of the land. So that's Jehoiachin, and he also was an evil king. He gets a thumbs down. And then the final king of Judah, the one who is reigning in 586 when Nebuchadnezzar comes in and gives them the death blow is Zedekiah. Zedekiah reigned for 11 years from 597 to 586. And like Jehoiachin, he also was taken to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar. And we'll read a summary statement of him in 25, 6 through 9. It says that they captured the king and brought him to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and he passed sentence on him. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. And then they put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him with bronze fetters and brought him to Babylon. Now on the seventh day of the fifth month, which was the 19th day of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He burned the house of the Lord, the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem, even every great house he burned with fire. And that was the end of the southern kingdom. Again, by this point, uh, Daniel had already been in Babylon for uh, quite some time. What would that be? Uh, almost 20 years, about 20 years that he'd been in Babylon. And that's when Judah was done. And Zedekiah had a, a pretty gruesome end, right? He lost his sons. He lost his eyes. He lost his kingdom. And he was captive in Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar's reign. And to make matters worse, verse, well, I don't know what verse it is, but he also was a bad king. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. And so we have the final four kings of Judah being very evil, wicked kings, despite the fact that Josiah was a righteous king. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord, and his kids just did not follow in his footsteps whatsoever. That's a ton of historical background information, but I think it will be helpful as we get into our study in Daniel. Any thoughts or questions on those five final kings of Judah? Yeah, Joseph. Our paper says Judah's first five kings. Was that a mistake? That was a mistake, yes. Okay. 
Yeah, Judah's final five kings. My bad. That's why I'm hopeful that we get those ESV books so that I don't have to make mistakes on handouts and you guys can just jot them down in your books. All right, and so uh, a key figure that I want us to remember throughout those five final kings is this Pharaoh Necho, right? He's the one who came in and off Josiah, he came in and imprisoned Jehoahaz, his son that was left king in his place. And then he decided, I'm going to appoint their king. I'm going to be calling the shots in Israel. And he appointed Eliakim. Not only did he appoint him, he changed his name to Jehoiakim and started collecting attacks from the Jewish people. So with that in mind, let's look at this shift in world powers that's taking place. Remember that it was Assyria who came in and took the northern kingdom of Israel, right? And they're kind of playing the heavy and saying, nope, you're coming with us, you guys are done. Well, they were a a world power who was on the scene for quite some time, for uh, over 100 years. And in 626, things begin to change a little bit. Babylon comes in and they rebel against the Assyrian Empire and they start to uh, combat them and raise in, in strength and power themselves. Just several years after that, in 612 BC, Babylon overthrows the capital city of Nineveh. And so that's a, a pretty big blow to the Assyrian Empire. Their, their capital city of Nineveh is now destroyed and they are kind of backpedaling from Babylon. They're on the defensive at this point. Well, just a few years after that, 609 BC, remember we're counting down because we're like leading up to Christ. It's a little bit backwards, right? But three years later, 609 BC, Assyria and the Egyptian army, along with Nico, Pharaoh Nico, uh, they team up and they are unsuccessful in coming up against Babylon. They attempt to attack Babylon but they fail, they're unsuccessful, and this is essentially the end of the Assyrian Empire. And so, again, Assyria teams up with Pharaoh Necho, they go up against Babylon, and they lose. Well, in May to June of 605, just a few years later, uh, Babylon isn't happy with Egypt for trying to come up against them. And so May to June of 605, Nebuchadnezzar led an attack against Egypt, and he defeated Pharaoh Necho and his armies. And that was the end of Necho, this guy who was so instrumental in the events of uh, Jerusalem and of Judah and everything that was leading up to this point. Remember, he was the one who had his, his thumb on them, and he had control over Israel Now he's gone, which kind of seems like a good thing for a moment, but Nebuchadnezzar is going to come in and he's going to take advantage of uh, Nico's absence. Now that he came in and and off Nico, that leaves Judah vulnerable. And in September of 605, that's when Nebuchadnezzar comes in and attacks Jerusalem. Actually, in between that, so after, well, in June of 605, Nebuchadnezzar got word that his father had passed away, and so he heads back to Babylon so that he can assume the crown and become king of Babylon. And so he goes back to Babylon, then he comes back on his way back to, uh, I don't know if he was actually headed back to Egypt or not, but it's just a few months later in September that he comes back after establishing his kingdom in Babylon and he attacks Jerusalem. Now, here in a moment, I'll give you a second to 
write that down. I see you guys are still jotting down some notes. But here in a moment, I'll show you a map, and you'll see that uh, Jerusalem is essentially right in the middle of Babylon and Egypt. And so Nebuchadnezzar comes down, he takes control of the, the Egyptian empire, and that just leaves poor little Israel in the middle, Judah in the middle, and they no longer have Nico overseeing them, overpowering them, and so they're really uh, just ripe for the taking for Nebuchadnezzar to come in because his empire at this point is surrounding Judah. All right, I will pull up that map, and this isn't the best map, but you'll see mostly in this purple area up here, the green and the purple area, that's where uh, Babylon had reign and rule in between the Black Sea and the, the Caspian Sea in the Ar Armenia and Cappadocia area, and you'll see Babylonia down there. So they had all of that. And then Nebuchadnezzar came in down to Egypt. He acquired Egypt, all that in the yellow, and that just leaves Jerusalem right there in the middle, right for the taking. And that's why it comes down in September. And again, that's just the, the first captivity in 605. That's just the start. So 605, 597, and 586 is when he comes in and destroys the temple and all the houses and everything that we read about um, that he did to Zedekiah in 2 Kings 25. Thoughts or questions on any of that? Yep. Yeah, so this picture is actually a picture of the, uh, the Persian Empire. And so the color scheme isn't right for this picture, but it's one that I was able to find that uh, had free licensing, so I could put it on here without getting our church in trouble. So, yeah, it's, it's essentially this circle right here between all the water. And Babylonia is down here in the green. Yeah, Kilo. Uh, Meadow Persia. They're going to come in next. Yeah, we'll read about that in chapter 6, I think. 5. Somewhere in there. All right. Kilo, do you have any more handouts? Can you run them over to them, please? Thank you. All right. Well, we just got a lot of background, and now we will actually jump into Daniel. The first two verses will kind of uh, help us understand hopefully, why we went through some of that background. So Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, it says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. And so... Jehoiakim, that son of Josiah that we looked at, he is um, the one who's reigning during this, this siege from Nebuchadnezzar. We see that uh, Nebuchadnezzar comes in. He doesn't only take Jehoiakim into his hand, but some of the vessels from his, the house of his God, from the temple, and he takes them and puts them in his own temple to this false god. And he is... Um, shifting things around. He is trying to uh, disgrace the, the God of the Jews and honor his own false idolatrous God. And 
this is the the new reality for Daniel. This is just the introduction to this book, but this is the reality that Daniel has now faced. He's been taken captive, and this is his world, his life for the next 70 years are now in Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar. All right, let's look at these following verses, verses three through five. And as we do this, I want you to pick out some of the the facts that we learn about these captives that are taken off to Babylon. Daniel 1, 3 through 5. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of the officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and the nobles, youths in whom was no defect and who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank, and appointed that they should be educated three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. So what were some of the facts we learned about the captives from Israel in those verses? Absolutely. You wanted the best, right? Good. What else do we see in there? It's interesting to me that he was interested in good looking ones too. That is interesting. Nope. Yeah. Interesting is a good word for that observation. I don't really know what to make of that. We could uh, come to some different conclusions, but it's definitely interesting. From nobility and they were educated. Yes, good. Yeah, they were educated even beforehand, right? He didn't want the, the dummies. He wanted the smart, good-looking ones, and he wanted to continue to educate them. All right. Well, I have a, a list that I've compiled here, just kind of walking down through the text, starting in verse 3. Uh, it recognizes that these were some of the sons of Israel. That's what they were called in the text. That's how they were identified, sons of Israel. And um, it says that they were including some of the royal family and the nobles, just like Christina pointed out. It goes on to say that they were youths. He didn't want any of the old people. He wanted the youths. Any thoughts as to why he might want youths? Mm-hmm. They're teachable. They're moldable, right? They are um, easy to, to influence and to take advantage of. It, again, the text doesn't say that, but I think that's a, a good conclusion that we can make, that they weren't set in their ways, that he could change their, their minds and their thinking a little bit. There was no defect in them. So, again, cream of the crop. He just wanted the best. They were good-looking, they displayed wide-ranging intelligence. So they weren't just smart in, in one area. They weren't just experts of one field. But they had a, a wide range of intelligence, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom. We see that they had understanding and discernment. So again, they were already wise. They were already knowledgeable and able to, to learn to be taught. And they had the ability to serve in the king's court. 
And so he's looking for people who can serve him. Uh, John Walver, he suggests a few reasons for Nebuchadnezzar taking these men rather than just leaving them, killing them. Um, He says that they could have served as hostages to keep the royal family of the kingdom of Judah in line. Remember, this is only a, a group of people he's taken from Judah. And so the royal family, they are from the royal family. Their royal families are still back there in Judah. And uh, remember, they've been giving this money to Egypt. And so now they're able to give this money to Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar is able to come in and take control of them, just like Pharaoh Necho was. And by having their, their sons, he kind of has more sway, more power and influence over the families that are back in Judah. The second reason is that their presence in the king's court would have been a a pleasant, constant reminder of his conquest and success in battle. That all these guys who are running around in his court, you can remember, oh yeah, I went down to to Judah, to Israel, and I defeated them, and just kind of a, a trophy. I think we talked about recently, maybe it was in one of the, it was in the first Samuel series, about how kings would have a a tendency to do that, to take over other kingdoms, bring those kings in. They would cut off their thumbs and their their big toes and just kind of have them as a trophy to parade around whenever their friends came by and they could put them on display and let them know, this used to be a king and now he's my servant, he's my slave. And a third reason is that, that Walberg explains Nebuchadnezzar may have taken them into his custody was that their careful training and preparation to be his servants would serve him well in later administration of and so three reasons that he perhaps took them captive rather than just killing them again they were uh, very capable men cream of the crop uh, so much so that Babylon wanted to utilize them they were taught the Chaldean literature the Chaldean language for three years and then they were put into service, put to work. And this wasn't just, uh, we can enslave them and, and put them to use, but he wanted to assimilate them into their culture. He didn't want them to associate with, with Israel. He didn't want them to associate with the God of the Jews. He wanted to assimilate them. And Dwight Pentecost surmises that the regiment that they underwent this study that they were giving likely included a study of agriculture, architecture, astrology, astronomy, law, mathematics, and the difficult Akkadian language. Um, So probably much more than just learning this Chaldean language and literature, but they were really put through um, uh, this extensive schooling. And the point of conflict that we're going to see in our passage that we're going to come to is the, the diet, right? Daniel and his buddies, they don't want to adhere to the king's diet that he wants to impose on them. But before we look at that diet, let's consider the, the four young men and, and meet these four young men and look at the, the names that we see here in verses 6 and 7. This also goes along with Nebuchadnezzar's desire to assimilate them, to get them to be Babylonians, to embrace this culture and this identity of we are now Babylonians. We aren't Jewish. We aren't Israelis. We're Babylonians. And so verse 6 says, Now among them, that is among this group of young men, these very talented, gifted young men, were uh, the sons of Judah. Among the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. 
Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. To Daniel, he assigned the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. And these aren't just, again, arbitrary name changes, but he is changing these names in order to assimilate them, to get them to think differently about themselves. And so the name Daniel, as we mentioned last week, it has meaning, right? As do pretty much all Jewish names. They have meaning, they have purpose. The name Daniel means God is my judge. Um, El is God in Hebrew. So God uh, is my judge. And that name was changed to Belteshazzar, which means lady protect the king. I don't really understand what they're trying to get at there, but he's trying to take away his name that gives glory to the one true God of Yahweh and give him a different name that is going to elevate King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Well, Hananiah, his name means Yahweh has been gracious. A very specific God, right? Yahweh has been gracious to him. His name is changed to Shadrach, which means I am fearful of a God. Again, changing his mindset. Not your God is gracious, your God is going to protect you because he hasn't, because you're now in Babylon. Things have changed, right? And so your name has changed. You are now fearful of a God, is what he's been told. Uh, Mishael, who is what God is? Again, lifting up the name of God. Our God is different. He is unique. He is set apart. Nobody is like him. And again, you got Nebuchadnezzar coming in and saying, no, I don't think so, because you are now captives in my land. Your new name is Meshach, which means I am despised. I am contemptible. I am humbled before my God. Again, trying to make and mold these young youths into a, a mindset that's going to be advantageous for Nebuchadnezzar, for Babylon, that's going to erase their commitment to their God, to Yahweh, the one true God. And Azariah, whose name means Yahweh has helped, his name is changed to Abednego, which means servant of Nebo, a false god in Babylon. So these names, again, aren't just pointless. It's trying to uh, humiliate and uh, really discourage these youths from any kind of independence, from any kind of hope in a God who can save and protect them and remind them that they're captives, that they're under the control of Nebuchadnezzar. Any thoughts or questions on those verses, those names? Yeah, Jim. Is there any reasoning, understanding why most of the rest of the scriptures refer to Daniel as Daniel, but it was referred to Mishael and Hananiah and Azariah by their, by their new names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Yeah, I'm not sure. I'll have to look into that and maybe we'll an answer as we go throughout there, but yeah, it's been a, a question that I've had too. Yeah, just, just seems contradictory. Yeah. It's always been my preference to refer to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, just for that reason, because they, their names in themselves give honor to God. Jerry?
fire. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, Joseph. No, no, there's other stuff that comes after. Uh, Ezra and Nehemiah come like immediately after. That documents the return to Israel and the the rebuilding of the temple. So, and yeah, there's even other minor prophets that come after that. So all that should be actually set in chronological order? The Bible isn't in chronological order. Is that what you're asking? But yeah, yeah and Daniel isn't the, the last in the Old Testament. All right, well, I want to read for us from Exodus 34. I'm going to read verses 11 through 16. And this gives us a, an understanding, perhaps, as to why Daniel and his friends didn't want to partake of this food that was offered to them. Um or that will be offered them. We haven't read that just yet. But it says in 34.11, Be sure to observe what I am commanding you this day. Behold, I am going to drive out the Amorite before you, and the Canaanite, the Hittite, and the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Watch yourself that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which you are going, or it will become a snare in your midst. And if you remember your uh, Jewish history Israel didn't obey this, right? They did make covenants with other nations, other peoples. But rather, you are to tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and cut down their ashram, which Josiah did, but other kings didn't, right? For you shall not worship any other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. Otherwise, you might make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they would play the harlot with their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and someone might invite you to eat of his sacrifice." And you might take some of his daughters for your sons, and his daughters might play the harlot with their gods and cause you to play, also to play the harlot with their gods. So we see that God has established and told them, you need to be separated. You need to be set apart from these other people. Otherwise, they're going to influence you and draw you away to idolatry. And that's exactly what we saw and exactly what Nebuchadnezzar is trying to do with Israel now. He's trying to impose his God over them. He's trying to change their names and, and draw them away from Yahweh. And surely many of them were, were swayed to do so. It seems like Daniel and his buddies are set apart in their desire to, to not be assimilated into this culture. And so let's go ahead and, and look at that in the, the rest of the passage. I'll read from verse 8 to 13. So remember that they were taken, they were told that you should eat of the king's food. He appointed a daily ration for him up in verse 5. The choice food and wine, they were appointed that they should be educated for three years. So picking up in verse 8, it says, but Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food and with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Now, God granted, that's important, right, to realize that God is the one who granted this. And um, also, going back up to verse 2, I didn't really point this out, but it says in verse 2 that the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. So, again, we see God is the one who's orchestrating these events, right? It's not as if Nebuchadnezzar came in and overpowered Jehoiakim by his own force. God gave him into his hand. Um, 
and that's what we see here in verse 9 also, that now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. Not because Daniel was good-looking and smart, which he was, but God granted that might happen. Verse 10, And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I am afraid of the Lord the king, who talking about Nebuchadnezzar, who has appointed your food and your drink, for... Why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are your own age? Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. But Daniel said to the overseer, whom the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please take your servants for ten days, and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be observed in your presence and the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food, and deal with your servants according to what you see. And so we see here in this section from 8 to 13 that Daniel is resolved to serve the Lord, to serve God, Yahweh, rather than men. And he was even influential in the resolve of his three companions. It was Daniel who kind of spoke up and spoke on behalf of his other friends and said, no, we're, we're not going to do that. We're going to uh, not eat of the king's food. Uh, just a, I, I looked for the, the episode. It was a few weeks ago probably, but John Piper in one of his Ask Pastor John podcasts, he was talking about this chapter and somebody had written in and asked a question about how to handle this whole uh, DEI, CRT stuff, the diversity, equity, and inclusion, the critical race theory, and with their employer telling them, well, you need to call this person by their preferred name and their preferred pronouns. And they were asking Pastor John, how should I deal with this? How should I uh, operate in this kind of environment? And he suggested, um, based off this passage, a, a couple of things. He said, first, you need to establish that your commitments to God rather than man. Um, just like Daniel did, just like uh, Peter and John did in the book of Acts. You need to realize that God is the one who's in control. You need to submit yourself first to him and then to your employer. And then he uh, suggested that they ask their employer, well, what is your desired outcome with this? What is your, your hope in having me use their preferred pronouns? What, it, what are you trying to get at? And surely the, the answer would be, well, I just want a a respectful work environment. I want a work environment that's filled with love. I want a, a productive work environment. And I, I loved the answer that uh, John Piper gave. He said, well, maybe you can take a, a Daniel one type of approach to it and say, okay, well, I cherish and value this person because they were made in the image of God. Because I realize that God has made them, that they have value because they are intrinsically, uh, they are intrinsically valuable because God has breathed his life into them. And I think that I can show them more love. I can show them more value. I can uh, produce a, a better product. I can be a harder worker because I, I do my work heartily as unto the Lord, not unto man. And why don't you allow me to show you that? Why don't you allow me to prove that to you? Just like Daniel was asking Nebuchadnezzar, hey, put us a little test. Why don't you give us this, this food that doesn't violate our, our Jewish law, that doesn't violate my conscience? And then you can come back and you can test me after 10 days and see how it is. I thought that was pretty uh, insightful. I thought it was a, a good idea. Um, I kind of lost my track there. Sorry. 
Um, so Daniel asks, just give us these vegetables, right? That's what my translation says anyway. But the Hebrew word for vegetables actually means sown things, not just like pure veggies. And so it could have included other grains and uh, different wheat and, and stuff like that instead of just purely veggies. But he's just saying, we don't want this meat, this meat that's likely been sacrificed to false gods, this meat that violates our, our Jewish diet. Don't give us that. Give us these other sown things and let us see how well we can perform. Let's see what happens in verses 14 through 17. It says, So he listened to them, that is the, the servant. He listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, their appearance seemed better and they were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. So the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and the wine that they were to drink and kept giving them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. Again, in that verse, in verse 17, we see that God is the one who gave them this knowledge, intelligence, and Daniel even had this ability to interpret visions and dreams in addition to that. And so we see that God blesses these four men for their obedience, for their willingness to stand up, to fear the Lord rather than men. Um, but we have to realize that this doesn't always look the same, right? Yes, God blessed them for their obedience. Blessing doesn't always look like getting our desired outcome. Remember that they're captives in this strange land, right? They've been taken away from home. They're prisoners. This is not an ideal situation. Yes, God has shown them favor, but this isn't where they would prefer to be. Uh, they were blessed even in this situation. They were offered this rich food, the king's choice food. They were offered the, the wine of the king, and um, yet they were, um, they, they were treated well. They were blessed of God, not in an ideal situation. In 1 Corinthians 10.13, it says that God is faithful who will allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able to, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able to endure, but the temptation, with the temptation, he will provide a way of escape. And so, yes, they're in this terrible situation. God has provided them a way out, um, but this blessing um, doesn't always look like what we think it should look like. And killed um, for their faith. They were in a, a less ideal situation because they're standing up for what is right, for what they should be doing. We know that from all throughout church history. All right, let's look at verses 18 through 21 through the end of the chapter. It says, Then at the end of the days, which the king had specified for presenting them, that's not in reference to these 10 days, it's in reference to the three years that they were to be trained up and given this food and taught. So in the, at the end of these three years, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and out of them all, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. As for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in his realm. And Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. And so here we see that uh, these four men 
found favor not only with God, but with King Nebuchadnezzar. Because God had blessed them, they found favor with King Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel in particular was blessed. He found favor with several subsequent kings, not just with uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, but as we see in verse 21, Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. And along the way, he found favor with uh, Nebuchadnezzar's replacement with his, um, his, his son, his replacement, uh, Belshazzar, in chapter 5, with Darius and Mede in chapter 6, and then this Cyrus the king. We read about him in chapter 10. This is the one who gave permission for, for the Israelites to go back to Israel in uh, Ezra chapter 1, I think. He told them, he signed this decree for them to be able to go back. And so all these kings, Daniel found favor in their midst because God had blessed Daniel. And we see that God is working through all this, uh, through this whole situation. These people taken captive out of their land, these things that seem to be uh, just a, a poor situation. God is still orchestrating these events to bring about his own glory. And he's using Daniel as his instrument to be a, a light to the nations. That he's not just there for Israel, but he is there as a light to the nations. That's what we're going to see in the next uh, five, six chapters that God is focused on these nations as well. I want to close with this quote from Dwight Pentecost. He says that God has set Israel apart to be a kingdom of priests. We see that in Exodus 19.6. As such, they were God's light to the world. They were to receive God's revelation and communicate it to nations that were ignorant of God. We don't often think of Israel as being a, uh, a, a missionary nation, but that's exactly what they were. They were to be a, a light unto the world, a light to the nations, so that the other nations could look to them and see, again, they are set apart. They are a distinct, unique people. And I want to look at those verses, Isaiah 42.6 and Isaiah 49.6. That's a great verse. So Isaiah 42.6 says, I will appoint you as a covenant to the people as a light to the nations. And then Isaiah 49.6 says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you light to the nations so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. That's a, a beautiful truth, a beautiful verse that is so impactful for you and me who are outside of Israel, right? That God has uh, had... This, this mystery that we read about in Ephesians 3, that the, the church, the gospel, is not just for the Jew, but for the Gentile also. That the gospel, yes, is first for the Jew, but for the Gentile as well, and we should be thankful and grateful if that's the case. And Daniel has been raised up to, to be this light for the nations, to, to shine even in the midst of this difficult time in Babylon. Any closing thoughts or questions? Well, uh, it, it, it feels like it, but it's not exactly the same. But it feels like in modern America that we are ostracized and minimalized, um, set to the side in modern society. They were 
God's will. Yeah. Yeah, but they still found favor with God and God blessed them. And um, yeah, I, th- I think we can make a, a distinction. I think without question, the world hates Christianity. It, it's easy for the world to hate Christianity. Um, it's easy just by nature for us as individuals to hate Christ and um, to rebel against him. It should be a little bit more difficult for people to hate an individual Christian, if Christians are are loving and gracious, if we're doing things that God has called us to do, if we are being the, the hands and feet of Christ, uh, it should be harder for people to hate the, the individual Christian because we should be loving, we should be gracious. Um, and hopefully we can change people's perspective on Christ by being a light unto the world. Um, but yeah, without question, people... People hate Christ. The cross is foolishness of those who are perishing. All right, well, next week we'll dip our toe into chapter 2, Daniel chapter 2. There's a a lot in there, and uh, it'll be a fun ride. I'm excited. Let's go ahead and pray, and we'll fellowship and continue to worship. God, thank you again for who you've made us, that we are a, a people who are set apart to you. God, help us to live our lives that way, that we would be... Uh, a a light to the world, a a city on a hill. God, help us not to be conformed to this world, but be conformed to to your image, that we would be conformed to your likeness, that you would renew our minds to be in in conformity with yours. God, help us to, to love you and to serve you well. Amen.